Joel White here, host of the Rams in White podcast. We're going to be speaking about business, property and finance, talking with industry experts, property professionals, investors, developers, entrepreneurs, and ultimately how to grow, scale and build momentum in your business. Thank you for listening. So, Tim, do you want to tell um, our audience today a bit more about yourself and your background and your law firm? Because from our understanding, you're not only a property investor, developer, but also a business owner and you own a law firm, a very successful law firm. So it'd be great to get a bit more about uh, that and, and kind of what you what you guys do there. OK, um, so uh, I, I own a law firm. I'm the only uh, owner. I've got about 65 staff, fewer part time. So 55, probably full time equivalent. Uh, and we cover pretty much everything you expect across the board. But if anything, we specialize at the moment in property work. Um, my property team is about 23 strong. Um, so within that, we have a specialist property investor team um, because I've come to the conclusion that actually a lot of solicitors don't do a terribly good job for property investors because they don't understand they're different. So I think there's a fundamental difference between a conveyancer buying a house from Mr. and Mrs. Jones on the local estate to, to buying a house uh, uh, for a developer. Um, I think the main thing is actually speed. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Jones always talk about speed, but it's actually it's more to do with emotion. There may be a chain involved, but for uh, but developers and investors, actually, uh, time is of the essence. They can lose their deal, they bridge all sorts of things. Um, and then, of course, you add in other tricky things like you have delayed completion or rent to rent or service accommodation, all sorts of things that the average conveyor has no idea at all, let alone bridging or company purchases. So we've got a specialist property investor team. We also have a highly specialist leasehold team, possibly the biggest of its type in the country. They deal with nothing but lease extension, freehold purchase and right to manage. Um, and that again is a very specialist area. Um, so we deal with probably, with probably the last few years, we've done about 10,000 lease extensions, I guess. So we've extended a lot of leases and bought a lot of freeholds. Anything from a very simple lease extension to uh, stuff up to, uh, I know we've got on the books recently, we had, um, I think a block of 152 in central London with a, um, a right to first refusal and a right to manage. And we acted for 93 people, They're quite complex stuff. So yeah, so that's us. And I said, we do other stuff. So whether it's wills or divorce or, or trust, those kind of things as well. But I think our biggest area is, is property. That's awesome. Thanks for that, Tim. I think it, that's music to my ears because um, you know most investors we work with treat their uh, portfolio like a business. And they're always looking for uh, opportunities in the market to make that business more robust, right? So they look at various strategies, how they can kind of use the right leverage get work with the right investors and, and ultimately work with the right professionals like yourselves and um what we find is what say someone is is doing a lease extension or they might be doing uh, buying an auction or they might be doing a conversion um the type of finance that they might have been used to in the past is it needs to be different it needs to be structured in the right way so it can fit that that strategy and uh that what we normally see is that they might have a solicitor that used to before and that was that was great on their residential purchase or remortgage but when it comes to something a bit more complex um then that solicitor isn't equipped or doesn't have the experience not they're not that they're not good at their job but they just don't have the exp- necessary experience in that market and there's normally delays there and and that causes pre- pre- pressure and pain points and ultimately cost on on time and, and in the worst case scenario it loses you can lose the deal so it's so important to use the right solicitors um conveyances who kind of understand the business models that the investors and developers are, are, are applying but also how the finance works behind that as well because it, you know when it comes to bridging uh finance there's typically the the borrower have to use the the, the uh, vendors uh, so have their own solicitor but also pay for the lender solicitors and then their solicitor will have to communicate with the lender solicitor and really understand that the questions are being asked to move that deal forward 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think I came with the idea of forming a property investor team because I used to go to various networking things. And probably for you know, the first couple of years, I'd have a chat with people, what do you do? And I'd tell them, and probably about 50 50, half of them would say, I've got a decent system, actually, probably less than that. But the rest would start moaning. And it took me a while to realize why, actually, that actually they were just dealing with people used to buying from Mr. and Mrs. Jones. And so in my team, as I said, I've got a whole load of residential conveyances, but they don't touch the investor work. I've got other guys who do, who usually understand commercial property as well, because even a, a lot of or even if you're buying residential property as an investor, often there are those commercial elements, as you say, bridging and company involvement, all sorts of things. And uh, the average residential investor doesn't really get it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and kind of, so you've niched yourself in that space. Obviously, there's other elements of your business. Um, tell us, like, why, why property? Why did you niche yourself in, in that space? I think it was probably like a lot of things in life, a happy accident. Um, you know, I, I had property years ago, but when, as I was building up the business, uh, law firms in, involve a lot of cash. So all, basically most of my money for many years has gone to building it up. You know, we're, it, it's, it's a quite a big business now. Um, and, and so as a result, um, I, I then um, was looking to, to do uh, some property stuff myself. Uh, again, accidentally, I bought um, a, a small office block all about 15 years ago. And I remember the first time I went round it, um, I looked at it and thought, oh, this will make really good flats, purely because of the shape. Uh, it had a sort of a front access, back access, and the stairs went up to each floor uh, and then split into two halves. It was a, it had everything in the right place. Um, and then I started going along to the property events and, and, and started moving on with that. So I suppose that's how we got involved. So I started dealing with more property investors, going along to events, found out that there were people who really needed solicitors. And I suppose it grew out of that. Saw a niche. I like niches. Uh, I'm a great believer. You know, if you're really good, I've got 10,000 law firms to compete with. So it's much better if I can say, actually, we're really, really good at this. So my leasehold team are really, really, really good. My investor team are really good. And on the other hand, Wills are very good, but equally there are probably another 5,000 firms who are as good as us and Wills. Hard to differentiate. But sometimes you can find Denise and really, really differentiate yourself. Yeah, I guess if you really understand an element of the market and you push yourself into there and add value in that space where your clientele are trying to operate there and need the right team around them to make that happen and you kind of can deliver... In a, in a way that kind of gets them the results they need, then they're going to refer you to other people and you can really grow that element of your business and then, I guess, expand from there, which is uh, looks like what you've done. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one of the key things, and it's always put forward at networking events, is getting your power team, getting educated. You know, guys like you specialise in investors. We specialise in investors. But there aren't that many brokers and that many solicitors who do. Um, so having those on board can make quite a big difference. Uh, but my advice always, if everyone has a good solicitor, you stick to them. You know, please do stick to them. But if not find someone who suits you yeah no exactly i always say to the clients it's kind of like um like an olympian you know when they go to the olympics you know it's them on the podium getting that gold medal aiming to get that gold medal but the four years before it's not just them training every day i know they've got to put the work in but it's actually their team around them you know the sports coach the nutritionist the psychologist you know that whole team around them for, to, to allow them to be in the peak position to go and do it and i, I say to the, the the kind of the investors well you know you're gonna have a good solicitor uh, a good accountant a good mortgage broker an ifa there's people around you so when you go out and get a deal you can bring that to the table and your advisor team can go yes that works this is how you're going to structure it this is how you're ultimately going to save money and propel that business forward and um hopefully good advice should save you money and ultimately make you money as well so um uh, you know I, I i really appreciate and respect kind of what you guys are doing at the moment the rams and white podcast is proudly sponsored by tfg capital a non-regulated short-term finance lender able to deal with intermediaries landlords investors and developers across the uk with a strong appetite to lend and the ability to fund bridging loans within a matter of days, TFG will find a lending solution that's exactly tailored to the client's requirements. 
for either investment purchase, refinances, release of equity or refurbishments. With hands-on senior leadership team deeply experienced in real estate finance, they can offer a unique service to take on challenges other lenders often can't. Lending decisions are based on the security and not the serviceability, financial performance or credit reports. If you're looking for business-related cash flow to refinance or add to your property portfolio or require funding for your next development and would like to find out more, feel free to contact the team today on 0800 061 4834 or email sales at tfgcapital.co.uk. Tell us a bit about how, how you set up the firm and how long how long it's been going. Obviously, it's 65 staff strong now. It's quite a big business. Yeah, so. I, again, I think like you know, another happy accident. You know, um, I, I got a job locally um, in Salisbury and I moved to Salisbury. Um, and then I was, uh, I was I was asked to go in, into a very much smaller business called Banalix to, 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 to go in there and, and help them. But the guy got fed up of waiting for this this merger was going to take place and said, I'd rather have you as a partner. So I went into partner with him, really small business, you know, turning over about 250 grand a year. So small solicitors firm. And gradually we built it up. He then wanted to retire. So I bought him out and then gradually realized this is what I was better at. Dropped the fee earning, became a manager, I suppose, an job owner full time and gradually built it up over the years, finding um, niches that work, as I said, like a lease extension and, um, and property, but equally trying some other areas. And didn't work. We, we tried horse law for one stage, equine law. Um, we had the, a barrister who wrote the encyclopedia on equine law to back us up. We had some people who were really keen on horses, but we couldn't break into the market. Most of our clients would spend 10 grand on a horse, but asked them to spend 50p on legal advice and they wouldn't do it. So I'm sure some people succeed in that niche. We didn't. Yeah, um, yeah. And then we found a niche that did. And once you found the niche, you get better and better at it. You get a rec- recommendation for it. And then you really stand out. Yeah. The good thing about the property market is, especially working with portfolio landlords, they it is their business so buying more properties restructuring re- refinancing growing building and, uh, and and it's great if you can specialize in that area and really understand it um and and, and tell me then a bit about the the, the lease extensions because we get asked this a lot at the, at the moment and some people avoid it because you know they, they feel like they can't get a mortgage or they don't understand how that will work um but actually there's some investors we work with who really understand lease extensions and the value add you can get if you can get an opportunity because you can typically buy below market value and add in that extensions or add the lease how, how does it work from a legal point of view for them for those who are considering that strategy well, I'm actually delighted you've got some, some clients who see it as a strategy because it, it's not very well known and there are very few people who do it. So I'm delighted to hear some, some more people who do because it can work really well. Basically, in a nutshell, um, the lower the lease gets, as I'm sure you know, it gets harder and harder to get a mortgage. Mm. I'm not sure what, what, what sort of figure you're working on, 60, 65 years below which yeah i mean it really varies across the different types of lenders but uh some will say like you know no less than 25 years or 30 years at the end of the lease from when it starts right and then uh, it goes up but it, it it depends on kind of what product you want in terms of rates and stuff you know so um it, it, you can be really limited on lenders on certain in certain areas because it's not only just about the, um, making sure the lease fits it's that making sure that client fits the criteria of the lender behind the scenes as well yeah. Well, I suppose in a nutshell, we, we agree that basically the shorter it gets, it gets harder to uh, to sell. So therefore, people are uh, often are uh, baked basically because uh, they they can't they, they need to sell to a, a cash buyer. So with lease extension broadly, um, uh, you, you can force unless there are a few weird exceptions, you can normally force your freeholder to give you an extra ninety years on the lease, and it's a legal right. So for example, the flats behind me actually is a block of flats in Bournemouth. If you've got a flat, say for example, eighty five years left. You can get a 90 year extension, which takes it up to 175 years at no ground rent. And there is obviously a price for that. 
there is a, there is an order uh, to go into so that the freeholder can't refuse. Um, but the lower it gets, uh, it gets more difficult. So the second it goes below 80, the price goes up. You have to pay. It's called marriage value. But the lower it gets, often you can't get a mortgage. So therefore, uh, you have to sell to a cash buyer. And a lot of cash buyers don't like it because they can't get a mortgage and they're nervous. So I think sometimes there can be real bargains. Um, in our experience, also, agents often don't help because a lot of the agents don't understand leases. Mm -hmm. uh, the number of times you see them talk about leasehold property online or the particulars, and there's no mention of the length of the lease. And, and, and a 10-year lease is completely different from 125-year lease, completely different. Yeah. So therefore, if you can find something cheap, um, sometimes you'll have to keep going back again and again with the offer because the agent may well have overvalued it. Um, and actually, the market will always have the right answer. So you might have a property that's on the market for £100,000, but no sensible uh, investor is going to pay that because they've got 50 years left on the lease. Uh, and yet, lo and behold, six months later, it's still on the market. So if you put in your 80 grand offer every month, there's a good chance that perhaps after that six month period, someone will see sense. And so, yeah, there's an opportunity there. There are legal costs on your side. And also, if you use the former route, you've got to pay the freeholders legal costs. Always recommend a specialist surveyor who will give you an idea of the value. And again, the, you need to pay the uh, freeholders costs and there's the premium itself. Um, but it, if you get the right price, it can be quite a bargain because you haven't got many people to compete with. I think that's the real problem these days. Everyone wants to invest. You know, the average flat or house goes on the market and there are loads of people who want to buy it. Um, but of course, with, with short lease flats, actually, you've got a much smaller market. So the competition is nowhere near as great and not many people understand it. If agents don't understand it, they're not going to say, well, all you need to do is buy it cash and get a lease extension. So all sorts of opportunities. And one of the one worth mentioning is sometimes people are put off with um, absent landlords, uh, freeholders rather. So again, imagine the block behind me. If you haven't got your freeholder, it's a nightmare. But there can be advantages because you can force the uh, freeholder, even if you don't know who they are, uh, to sell to you through the courts. So they can either um, get a lease extension through the courts or you can come together with other freehold uh, leaseholders and buy the block. Um, and that is, is very specialist, but it can again produce quite a quite um, a bargain and people are scared of it because they think it's, it's just a, it's a non-starter. But if you know, you know there are issues and you know who to go to, these things are all solvable and as a result can be real, real bargains. I think in the market where it's typically gone up in value, I mean, like down in some of the properties where, where we, we, we invest in markets, gone up by 34%, right? And all you hear is, oh, I can't find a deal, I can't find a deal. But actually, are you looking in the right areas? Or are you looking for the right things? And once you start understanding kind of strategies like this and working with people like yourself, Tim, who can kind of articulate how you can get through it and uh, uh, make it viable, um, then suddenly there's deals on the table again. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a great fan of niches where you haven't got the same kind of competition, really know your stuff. So yeah, lease extension is a, buying short lease property is a vastly underrated strategy. What? So if someone was a new, new, newish investor, they've got three or four properties, typical buy to lets, and they're listening to this podcast now and they're going, okay, I'm going I'm to give that a go. They go and meet their local agents or uh, where they find their properties and maybe some commercial surveyors, et cetera. And, and they say, well, we've got the, this property. It's got a pretty low lease. We've been told by our mortgage advisor, we can't get a mortgage on it. So you have to be a cash buyer, right? You know, they can speak to someone like us and we can go, okay, well, we can, we can help fund it. But what would be the process if they spoke to you, Tim, and how, how would that how would that go play from there? Um, well, in, in terms of surveyors, again, that's very specialist as well. And we have an informal panel we've worked out of people who do this nationwide, and there aren't many. You know, we've probably got about seven or eight, perhaps 10 on our panel. There aren't very many, very few surveyors understand it because it's quite technical. So broadly, we ha we're happy to explain the situation. Um, if they're buying, there's also there's another trick. Normally, you need to have owned a property for two years before applying for a lease extension. Now, you can do what's called an informal lease extension with a freeholder, but that's risky because they can pull out at any stage, they can set whatever price they want to. So it's occasionally useful, but not often. 
But if if, if the um, you, if you don't want to wait two years, and if the current owner has owned the property for two years, what they can do is they can put in the application in, no cost, just a straightforward section 42 application. And then on completion, that application, the, the, the benefit of it gets transferred across to you. And you as the purchaser, go ahead, do your lease extension without having to wait for two years. Um, and we do that a lot. Uh, in fact, when we do that, normally on behalf of purchasers, we, we tell the uh, the vendor solicitors, look, actually, we'll put the application in for you. We'll, we'll provide all the information. We'll provide indemnity insurance for you if we get it wrong, because we don't trust some other solicitors to do this because they don't know what they're doing. So therefore, we take control through them. And therefore, we know that application is going to go in correctly. So as soon as the completion is taking place, you can crack on with the least extension rather than to wait two years. Um, and, and time makes a difference, because as you say, with, with with lease extensions the lower it gets you'll be hit by a double whammy if prices are rising as they are in your neck of the woods and considerably every year the, the flat or house is worth more which means you're gonna have to pay more for your lease extension and the lease it, it gets shorter which means you're gonna have to pay more so actually it's getting worse and worse and worse it's a double whammy you're hit with so normally in a rising market our advice is to get a lease extension as soon as possible Awesome. So effectively, there, there doesn't need to be that two year uh, wait, uh, waiting period to, or ownership, you can they can get the vendor to apply for Section 42 and or you can and you can take care of that for them. It's also the same with probate property. Again, not so much probate property in the market, although there is more at the moment. And again, if, if, the, if the deceased owned it for two years again and it's a short lease flat, you can do exactly the same. You can um, get the executives to apply for the Section 42 and transfer that across. So again, not many people realise that. So again, it's an, an advantage if you know that and no one else does suddenly you've got an advantage in the market. Awesome. Thank you, Tim. And then another strategy we see clients look at is they're buying kind of a freehold block and they want to create leases. And then there's a question of, do I do I own the freehold and the leases in my own name or do I have the management company set up in an SPV? And and how does that structure? So from, from, from your point of view, how would that you guys, you guys advise and, and work around that? People refer to this as title splits, and I'm going to be really boring now. One of my lawyers always grumbles at me when I talk about title splits because this is technically not a title split. A title split is a bit like when you get a bit of land, say a big field, you divide it into two, two separate parts, and you build a house in each. That's a title split. You split the title into two. This effectively, say the building behind me is all one, one on one freehold, and you create individual leases. That's referred to as a title split, but technically you're creating leases. And the thing to know there is if you own the freehold, you can't grant a lease to yourself. So an example, I've got a flat, a block of six uh, flats, which I did for commercial conversion. Uh, as it happens, I haven't done anything with it. So it's under one title because I, I rent them out. So I don't intend to sell. But if I'd wanted to sell them, I couldn't have created the leases to myself. I'd have had to create it to a third party. So either, for example, if I owned a block in my sole right, I could, I could grant the leases to a company I owned, or I could grant the lease to myself and my wife because two people class as, a, as different from one person. But you can't grant a lease to yourself. So that's one thing to spot at that stage. Um, in terms of keeping the freehold, we've got we've had clients over the years who had a lot of freeholds, and it's got a specialist thing. Um, unless there's a good reason, I'm always suspicious of the need to keep a freehold if you sold the flats off, because there are a lot of things you have to do. And if, if you do it on a regular basis, it becomes a business. It's not a hassle. But having a one-off freehold, you've got the insurance issues, all sorts of other issues. Um, it's, it's a specialist area. So if you're only going to do it once, I would query whether you really want to dabble in that, because the income isn't huge particularly with the government looking at reforming ground rents, et cetera. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, you can hold, keep the freehold, but if you're gonna sell the flats, why keep the freehold as well? Mm. Have you seen a lot of pension companies um, buying, in, buying freeholds from, from larger scale developments because of that kind of 
consistent income but it's a low it's a low kind of yield isn't it but it's consistent for for them and that's kind of they see it as a safer bet um, but again specialist in that area I can't think of any other area immediately where you know exactly what you're going to get for the next 150 years. You can tell by the day exactly what your income is going to be. It's virtually yeah. unknown. Yeah. Unknown. But yeah, that, that's being undermined. I, certainly my understanding is that freeholds aren't uh, getting the price they were. So freeholds without the leases aren't getting the prices they were because of government announcements and changes. Um, so it hasn't been, a, the market hasn't been annihilated, but I think it's not as strong as it was because some of the income isn't as big as it was, I suppose. So the, the, uh, the, the price of freeholds is, is a bit lower if you're selling them than it was, say, two or three years ago. Hmm. And with the firm then, uh, Tim, you know, all the, all the transactions you see, I mean, we see, I mean, we did a complete on 106 million last year in, in, in lending, so cost by to let HMOs. So we got a good, good kind of steer on like what, what our clients are kind of doing across the UK. It'd be really interesting to see like kind of what, what areas that you guys are kind of seeing more. Is it more kind of HMOs or service accommodation or portfolio acquisition? Where, where is that at the moment? I have to run it past my team, but one thing, quite a few inquiries come through me. I'm active in the property community, so a lot of guys come through me. And I've certainly seen a lot of title splits recently. I'm not quite sure why, mm. um, but certainly I, I've, I've probably had more inquiries for title splits. And actually, this is usually buying a block. And as I said, splitting the leases. Seems to be a lot of those at the moment. Um, I think some HMOs have been sold. Again, we, we had uh, somebody inquiry actually just this morning who wanted to sell some and buy some HMOs. Um, and again, I think there are some concerns with HMO pricing in some parts of the country. I think some landlords are pulling out. Um, you know, you hear anecdotal, you know, mess, stories about people who are moving out. I spoke to uh, the first event I actually spoke to publicly about a month ago, the first time I've done a live gig for about two or three years. It's all been online like this. Um, and it's interesting, this person had a large portfolio, very large, and was looking to expand hugely, you know, really, really big portfolio. And they decided not to. So actually, they're selling some of their stuff. And now they're, they've got a gradual uh, income guarantee for the next however many years. And it's a big income. And they're simply pulling it out because it is getting more stressful. So um, I think there are changes. And I guess I've always felt in the long term that the sector will become consolidated. Um, government will hit it with more and more regulation, uh, more and more tax, um, because landlords are always seen as an easy hit. It's always evil landlords. You never see, watch a TV programme where the landlord or a property developer is the good guy. You, you guarantee the developers are always the baddies. And so I think we're easy targets. So I suspect there'll be more, uh, more um, regulation and there'll be more taxation as a result of which the one people who are more marginal at the bottom may struggle. And I think we'll get larger, bigger organisations um, gradually forming and merging over the next 20, 30 years. Yeah, and no, I agree with that. If you look at like the timeline of events in terms of what's happened to landlords over the last 10, 20 years and uh, in terms of the tax changes and uh, landlords moving into SPVs and and even recently recently with um, EPCs, the changes and de demand for that and landlords will have to kind of make their properties more um, environmentally friendly to 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 be able to let it. So that there has definitely been a lot of... Uh, uh, hits on landlords in terms of to try and keep their business profitable and move forward and and i, and I think you it depends on where the i guess the business owner or landlord is in, in their timeline of uh, what they want from their business you know because some of the, the larger portfolio landlords have been in the industry 20 30 years it's very much it's very different and they might be thinking well actually i've made my money i move out and take that that capital appreciation and, and move it into other areas that might give them a better return um Whereas you've got new landlords coming in who are just eager to be in the market and uh, figuring out how to make that happen as well. So it's quite interesting dynamics what you're seeing with the title splits. Uh, we're seeing a lot of that as well. It's just, again, that how do I add value in a market that's kind of like squeezing me from every angle? And I think if you can 
add value, then that's a kind of a, a safer bet because you're de-risking the investment as much as possible. I'm, I'm absolutely with you. Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of people are really struggling to make a, a, a big enough income because prices have become so high and tax has been nibbled out at the bottom. So yeah, I'm with you entirely. Find something that adds value. And there are a number of things, whether it's buying a short lease flat or, or title spreading, and there are a number of things that can provide um, added value. Yeah, I'm with you entirely. Talk to us, Tim, about your, I know you've done a few projects yourself. Do you want to kind of share what's going on behind the scenes or what you've been up to in terms of property? Because that would be, it'd be great to hear about that. Um, uh, I, I certainly, um, before COVID, I had two property, two uh, projects uh, done. Um, and then I was expecting, I think like a lot of people, I got it completely wrong. So it, it, it's a first error. A solicitor actually admitting they're wrong. You know, I expected the market to tank uh, after, you know, after lockdown and COVID and whatever. And it didn't, of course. If anything, it's got stronger and stronger. So I sat on my hands for two years doing nothing. And then it got it completely wrong. So I'm now making up for time. But certainly before COVID, I did two projects. I did an HMO uh, converting a three bed to an eight bed. And that's gone very well. We actually spent more on the uh, on the conversion that we did actually buying the property mm. uh, but it's it's been good because as a result it's top end um, and we've had very few voids if someone moves out that somebody else moves in within days usually so that's been very successful that's nice that's ticking over it's managed so again it's as hands off as you can get you know we get the money every month and very occasionally they'll say something like can you pay this bill fine that easy and the other one was a commercial conversion the building i think i mentioned it was an office um and then i decided to convert it to flats um so i converted it to six flats uh, we hold those um, for a service accommodation. Two we kept as ASTs just to uh, tick things over, and that's been good. Again, I've got a manager for that, and again, so it's relatively hands off, and that's gone really well. Um, so, but I made quite a few mistakes uh, with the commercial conversion. I think anyone who starts does, and I'm always a great believer in um, learning from other people's mistakes. So, have you have me to share a couple of my mistakes in that? Oh, I'd love to. I think I think um, the audience will get massive value from it. Like it's all good to come on here and say how great we are, but actually the real value is in the in the lessons we've learned. So yeah, please please share. Lesson number one was um, be careful if you've got a day job. Um, you know, I've got a day job running a law firm. You know, there are times when it gets you know quite a lot to do, and as a result, both myself, and my wife also helps me run the firm. Um, actually, we got dragged back into that, so it took far longer than it than it should have done. Um, the joke I made at the time was I was trying to get in the Guinness Book of Records for the slowest ever commercial conversion. And it, was <laughs> slow. it took far longer. I, I, I just didn't get my act together. So I think I learned my lesson there, you know, prioritise these things. Um, so uh, that's number one. If you've got a day job, it's hard to do a full day job and, and do this kind of thing. You can do it, but you've got to be focused. And I wasn't quite disciplined enough. And I think now I'm trying to have one day a week guaranteed that's going to be my property day so things don't slip. So that's number one. Secondly, I think the big thing was due diligence. Um, and I learned a lot from that. Um, due diligence, it, it, just about every podcast or, or, or course you go on, they talk about do your due diligence, and particularly with joint venture partners um, and builders, etc. But I don't think anybody actually tells you what due diligence is. Mm. Um, so again, if, if it helps you at all, we actually produced a due diligence checklist for joint venture partners. We, we, we run it past the banks and accountants and other investors. So we've got a free download there if, if you want at any stage. But I made a mistake in that I didn't uh, check the builder. Uh, I left it to a project manager. Again, I was trying to be semi hands off. So I got a good project manager who had a good track record and he chose the builder, but he wasn't careful. And the builder was shocking, to be honest. Um, it, we, you know, we should have checked the kind of basic checks should have been done was about his history. He'd had a number of businesses that had gone belly up. And so what he was doing, he shouldn't have had a contractor, but he had a number of contractors. So he was taking my money and then not paying the contractors and then telling contractors, oh, he hasn't paid me. Um, so these guys got cross. So um, but fortunately, we saved ourselves. Because in the JCT, the, the, the contract, the, um, the building contract we had, which you have for medium-sized construction things, 
there is the opportunity for putting in um, a penalty clause. And our project manager left that blank. And we thought, that's ridiculous. Uh, the build is going to be at this, we thought about 350 or 400, something like that. So we thought, actually, that, that's a substantial build. So let's put a penalty clause in. So we did. And we put it in at £1,500 a week. So after he was about four months late, we got a whole load clawback. And in fact, eventually he simply vanished. Um, uh, and, and so we learned a lot from that. And then we actually had to get somebody else to finish it off. But certainly due diligence. I did not do enough due diligence. It's always your money. No one else will care as much as you. Hmm. And I also learned something about being hands off. You can be too hands off. So I'll give you a, a perfect example. Um, there were various things that needed doing in the building. Uh, a couple of them were windows. Now the building had been built 15, 20 years before, so modernish, but there were problems with big windows and they were six, eight feet tall, big wide windows. Um, and certainly both the project manager and builder said, we'll need to replace those. I think it's two or three grand each. It's, not, not, you know, it's quite expensive in, in a build of that size. One day I went around the building and I didn't spend enough time watching them. Anyway, I went up to the window and I pointed and said, is that one of the, build, the windows you've got to replace? And he said, oh yes. And I said, look, oh, all, all the sills rotted. Oh, yes. But the window, the glass is OK, isn't it? Oh, yes. So you could just replace the sill, couldn't you? Yes, they said. In front of me. Th these are project managers and builders. They were going to replace an entire window when we actually replaced it for like 125 quid on the sills. And it was only there because it was my money. I did not want to spend four or five grand if I could spend 250. And that opened my eyes. I think, you know, I, 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 in future, even if I'm confident in, in somebody's doing stuff, keep an eye on it yourself. Um, so that, 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 was, that was a big learn. So I think there are two things, due diligence, um, you know, never, ever don't do enough due diligence, especially on your joint venture partners, because people lie, um, they, they claim they've done things, all sorts of things. Um, and then it, it's your own money. Um, no one will ever care as much as you will, because, you know, that, that five quid that goes out of your pocket is your five pound, not theirs. But when it's five grand, that's a lot. Absolutely. I appreciate that, Tim. I think some good advice there, um, especially when it comes to JVs. Um, the first one you talked about the day job and I took on that time management, you know, is be, I think it's being realistic with yourself. What can you do? What value can you bring? And actually sometimes just finding a deal is enough value. Um, but when you've got, you know, 65 uh, members of your team that you're responsible for, you're going to, you're going to be swayed by that and be there and, and trying to help and push that business forward. And, uh, and, and your time is stretched, isn't it? So how do you, how do you mitigate that? And then, um, Number two is, uh, you know, for me, is really important due diligence. Um, I think our audience would be would really appreciate that checklist. So maybe we'll, after the, the the pod, we'll put it in the show notes that how how they can get in touch with yourself. Um, but due diligence critical. I think we we meet so many people and hear of so many JVs that go wrong. But it, and you ask them how did it start, and it you know it's over a pint, and it was, it's it's normally from excitement. You know, there's normally good intentions. Um, but a JV kind of is like a marriage. You've really got to get to know each other, and you know what is your what what are you trying to achieve? Because people change in life and their their objectives and their relationships and 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 their health and what does that actually mean? And I think when you get into a JV, it's really important to have them conversations, and then we talk about like shareholders agreements and uh, key man's protections. So you know if someone passes away and their partner now suddenly wants shares in the company, like are you happy for that and how is that going to work from a financial point of view can you have you got the resources to, to settle that so it's all these uncomfortable conversations but they should you should get comfortable with it because at the end of the day it's business and you want to be prepared for, for very eventuality 
I, I think you know investors, and, and I get them sorry because are entrepreneurs. Basically, it's the deal usually that gets them excited, and I'm just the same, which is why I, I'm better running a business probably than actually being a lawyer on say conveyancing because I, I prefer the big the big issue. Mm. Uh, but the great danger is you, you miss the boring things, mm. and some things are boring. The legal contracts are not very exciting. Let's face it, the shareholders' agreements, the due diligence, these kind of things are not exciting, but they have to be done. Mm. Um, we also also give a talk about uh, what I call the legal six pack, and there are six documents. I'll mention it very quickly, which I think people need at least if their circumstances are appropriate. So a will, it's amazing how many, how many people don't have a will. Um, and if you're actually, you know, if your circumstances change and if you're buying property, it is changing, you need a will. It's very cheap. Secondly, a power of attorney. So, you know, if something happens to you and you're incapacitated, someone else can cover your, your deal. Again, that can be catastrophic. If you're in the middle of a deal and you can't sign something off, you know, because you're in hospital with COVID or whatever, um, or you've had an accident. So that's the second one. Um, then thirdly, if you're doing going into a joint venture, you'll need some sort of agreement between you. And again, we see people going into business without it. There was one classic I had, two guys who were really good. I knew them really well. They were very experienced. They did some really good deals to people, had their own property, uh, and always got other people to do legal stuff for themselves. But they hadn't got around to having a shareholders agreement. And after a while, the property they and they went in different directions. One wanted to carry on property and one wanted to pull his money out. And they disagreed. Now, the problem was without a shareholders agreement, there was nothing they could do about it. It's a deadlock. There's nothing there's nothing they could do. So they had an option of either negotiating or going to court. Horrendous. Mm. And they said, actually, they were really embarrassed because if they had a shareholders agreement that had what's called a deadlock clause that said uh, in the case of something like this, it could go to an arbitration or a third party to make a decision or whatever. There are ways around it, but they didn't. Um, so that's number three. You either need a shareholders agreement if you've got a company or if you haven't got a company, you formed a partnership and you need a partnership agreement. Number five, terms and conditions. So, for example, if you're doing rent to rent or whether you're doing sourcing, you know, written terms and conditions. And lastly, if you're employing people, contracts of employment. They're the ones that people forget. But certainly, I'd say the wills and the shareholders agreement, they're the two biggies uh, for investors. And it's surprising how few actually get around to doing it. It's a bit like insurance. You know, insurance is absolutely no use until something bad happens. Mm. You spend a fortune and you might mumble. But actually, when lightning hits your house or you have a flood or there's a problem, that's when you need it. And legal contracts are exactly the same. People mumble, oh, do I really need to do this, etc. But you don't really need to do it until it goes wrong. And when it goes wrong, it's too late. Yeah, uh, we, we call it a gap analysis. You know, it's all good. Um, we can help you create a really successful business and portfolio, um, you know, by helping you understand leverage and what's available to you. And it's really exciting, yeah. But then actually what happens in the downturn? You know, what happens if you get ill? What happens if someone dies? You know, what what's your inheritance tax liability if you built up a five million pound portfolio? What where do you want that money to go? Um, what happens if your business partner decides he doesn't want to or he or she doesn't want to be involved in the business anymore? You know, and um, you know, we we've we've got another we've got we're involved in a few companies and one of them we've just got in the background. Uh, there's uh, four business partners and um we probably spent six weeks on the shareholders agreement because um, it just needed to be done because our lives are very different. We all add value in this business. So we bring a lot to the parties. I believe it's going to be a successful company. However, if something happens between one of us, it could impact the company and the company needs to come first as its own entity. Um, but that means that everyone else can benefit from it as it grows and develops. But it, you know, if someone has a different opinion or wants to move away from the business, then it's back to shareholders agreement. Okay. We all, we all agreed on this. We all signed it off. Um, let's move forward amicably and, uh, and, and the business can survive and thrive. It's not as exciting as doing a deal, but it's essential. as you say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, in terms of shareholders agreements, uh, is this something that your firm will, will look at? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, 
Yes, yes I'm, we're halfway through preparing our checklist for shareholders agreements as well, actually. We've got a, on the page on the website, great little list of things, so we need to adapt that a bit. But yeah, there are a whole lot of things to consider. Um, yeah, we do those a lot, um, you know, and any sensible. If you're setting up a, a company, you know, if they're going to be more than one of you, the two of you, um, you really do need one. Uh, any exception sometimes, if you've got a very strong marriage, you might not need to. My wife and I don't, for example, mm -hmm. purely because we've been together 35 years. Yeah, um, yeah. And frankly, I don't think it's, uh, nothing's going to happen there. But apart from that, you know, you never know, even with family members, you know, everyone says, oh, it's only a family member, it's fine. But actually, families fall out. Yeah, um, yeah. When money's evolved, either there's too much money, there's too little money, or your life just changes. You know, so many people in COVID have changed their, the, the way they work. You know, I know loads of people retiring earlier. I've got a member of the family who's 49 on an enormous salary, very successful. Uh, she's going to retire next year. Had no, had no plan to do so before COVID, but now she will. She'll retire age 50. Yeah, we've definitely seen like people's perceptions and their needs and, and desires change considerably over over COVID. And actually, I, I speak to a lot of people who uh, I, I say, you know, it's, it was an interesting time, wasn't it? You know, we were just working so hard, head down, trying to keep the business going and and move forward. And other people who may have been on furlough were still getting paid, enjoying the sunshine. And actually, it was a nice time because they spent more time with their family and um, and and their views and, and their outlook on life is, is definitely changed. But I think when it comes back to business and property, um, it's just being you know you, you focus a lot of the time as entrepreneurs on the success the opportunity you know people are in that space are normally opportunists like big thinker uh, big kind of thinkers um but it's like the pragmatist you need to kind of like develop a little bit of that or realistic like okay if things don't go to plan what does that mean and i think as business owners it's just being aware of what's available to you to protect the downsides and it cares again it comes back to speaking to people like yourself tim and and us and ourselves at rams and white like what what's available put everything on the table and then you can make an informed decision on how best to how best to proceed um and uh, then you know would you take a risk on you know with your family so and the answer is normally no so why would you take a risk on your business that you're working so hard and actually sacrificing a lot of your time with your family to build this business so it's just uh, it's just been but it's been aware and then once you really understand it then you can uh, make the informed decision to proceed with it yeah having a plan b is really important you know what happens if yeah uh, yeah yeah exactly okay cool um Tim, tell us about managing 65 staff or growing that team. And because, uh, you know, we I started three and a half years ago in my spare bedroom. There's 24 of us now, 500 million lending. We've got the wealth management arm, the mortgage arm, the estate agency. And it's exciting. It's great. But, you know, having all these people and you need to create infrastructure and management and people actually are the business, you know. So how it'd be great to hear how you how you've grown and developed and where you sit within the business. Managing lawyers is a bit like herding cats. I think that's the first thing. So they've all got their own view. You know, solicitors have, have, all have their own view. They're used to being right all the time. So, so that's always an issue. Um, uh, but to be honest, we've got a management structure. Um, my, my, I tend to do external stuff. So I tend to do strategy, um, uh, leadership, training, recruitment, those kind of issues, I suppose. My marketing, a lot of the time, marketing, business development. Um, I'm fortunate. My wife is the best manager I know. She's got an MBA. She does uh, um, various... Um, jobs for other firms got got big businesses so she tends to do more the internal stuff so i'm pleased to say she's a proper manager and i think there are big differences um, entrepreneurs don't always make great managers um, and i think sometimes if your business gets to a certain size there's some great stuff by some guys who produce a book called traction and they talk about two different types of um of, of uh, people and I, I forget the words entirely but it turns out my wife and i are exactly those one is is the um the vision I think visionary that's what i call it the, the visionary who has the idea very full of energy running around doing deals actually probably having too many ideas 
and then there's the, the practical one who actually gets things and who pulls them back. Um, and I think that's very useful. It's a very good system, traction system, to work regular meetings and, and getting the right people. So I think that was essential, having those differing skills. Having a business full of me would be a disaster. You know, we'd all go in a certain direction and there'd be no one with any sense to tap me on the shoulder and say, don't do that. Um, but equally, you need someone like, like me again, or like you, to, to, to drive the business, to have the energy, to have the ideas, um, the motivation. So it's, uh, it, 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 when you get to a certain size, you need different skills in business. Um, and we were lucky just to coincidentally find them in each other, I guess. Hence, probably why the marriage has been so successful 35 years, right? Because you complement each other well, which is which is great to hear. And I think you can apply then principles into business. I've, that book, Tra Traction, I've, I've listened to the, the audio. It's a great book. And um, yeah, I think it's just identifying um, what your skill set is, being honest with yourself and doing more of that. Because business owners tend to try and do everything in the early days. I didn't want to let go. Um, but learning... Uh, to delegate is a skill in itself and uh, I think the biggest thing I've learned is learning to recruit people who are better than me in other areas you know so we have a really great admin hub and and full of case managers and administrators and I say to some of the clients that you really want Jordan Price uh, managing your admin in the background because he's so so good at it and Rachel and a few of the others in there and um and it's great to have them people and then you know we've got Ollie who's like an operations manager who's you know he's not he doesn't care about the big picture stuff he cares about how do we, how do we become more efficient you know how do we you know our offers at the moment are say 21 days from application offer how do we get it to 10 days how do how do we get the documents back in and it's that sort of stuff that we go that makes the cogs in the business move a little bit better Absolutely, you know, and, and Brant, I've always quoted Branson. He said, said something pretty similar. Richard Branson always said, "I employ people cleverer than me." You know, get people who are really good at what they're doing. Absolutely, um, and we have a lot of specialists, um, and we spend a lot of time on recruitment. Recruitment is getting harder and harder. If you're looking to grow a business and staff, that's getting harder, um, and it's only going to get more difficult. Partly because I think we have people um, retiring more. Partly because there's a big holdup uh, in terms of COVID. A lot of people didn't move around. So what's called the Great Resignation. I know in, in America in September alone last year, I think uh, three percent of the workforce moved company. That's thirty-six percent. That's you know one in three. Um, what's also really interesting is age, and this is why I think it's going to be harder to recruit people uh, and keep people. Um, people of my age, fifty-five to sixty-four, move on average every month, nine to ten years. That's the average. Millennials every three to four years. Mm. That means once the millennials have moved through the system, unless they become more stable, if they're moving every three to four years, that means every business will have between a third and 24, 25% of its staff leaving every year. Mm. We had a member of staff 18 months ago who retired. Um, we'd taken her from a firm, we'd taken over, but she'd been in the same firm for 55 years. She joined at 15, she retired at 70. I can't see that happening. Yeah. Um, you know, every three or four years, that puts an enormous stress on business. So, um, you know, mm. businesses are having to adapt. Yeah, I went and seen... Uh, my kind of branch business um, bank manager and she'd been in the industry for or in that bank for 32 years I believe she was saying and and I remember thinking that's quite rare nowadays to get that and uh, as a business owner I'm always kind of thinking how do we keep uh, how do we keep the team engaged how do we get it's not just about money for people what I've realized is it's it's about feeling valued and also having the autonomy to add value in the company and uh, and trying to create like development programs which they can go on and, and feel part of it and then one of the biggest things I've learned is actually to grow you, you probably need to bring people in as partners at some point to retain because if someone's excellent and could equally do the job themselves elsewhere for themselves what they'll get to a point where they probably could and you know you, you don't want to have it so it's a gun to your head but it's it's kind of you you're, you're talking together and 
making them aware of, of how much value they are adding, but also how much more value there is over here and how you can bring that together. So I think a robust uh, recruitment strategy is really important for a business owner, but also then how do you, you can, um, you know, we talk about, we in, we make a joke here about the Aladdin, you know, I can show you the world, that song. And uh, we've, we've had managers that have done that to us and you go there and then it's like, well, actually the grass isn't that green. So it's not just about recruiting, but it's actually retention. You know, what does your like onboarding um, uh, process look like? And what does it, the, the, do they actually understand what the company does and what their role is? And, and that all takes time, um, especially if you're really good at just meeting people and putting deals together and not really kind of operational kind of minded in the background. So yeah, definitely some lessons in there. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we've we've in, spent a lot of time on our onboarding process. We set up what we call an accelerated development program for paralegal. So we take graduates on um, and the first one has now gone through the system uh, and he's just qualified and staying with us and he's really, really good. Um, but again, we're very we're, we're structured in the training. So rather than just let, letting them loose, I had terrible training. I had training in Central London, just off Leicester Square, and there was nothing organised at all. I was just dumped in a room and magically expected to learn by just being in the room. That was it. There was nothing more than that. It was, it was shocking. Uh, and this was an expensive, you know, posh firm of London music solicitors. Um, so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You need to have uh, programmes. You need to keep on board. And also, we sometimes get boomerangs, people who go and come back. Mm-hmm. We're very choosy about that. But it's always great when they come back because they have gone away. Found actually it wasn't quite so good as they thought, but yeah. actually they're good. They'll come back and say, I can have my job back. And it's, yeah, please come back. So we've <laughs> had a number of boomerangs and that's always satisfying. Yeah, for sure. I want to talk to you, Tim, just quickly about, um, so a lot of our clients will you know, have good intentions when they get into property and business and they're just like, you know, looking to better their, their, themselves. I had a client recently and um, they're looking to build a portfolio of 10 HMOs. And the reason for that is that their son's disabled and they want to put the portfolio in trust and because that the son won't be able to work later on life. So it's just, there's a bit of a legacy and, you know, helping out there. So really kind of meaningful while, while, and there's so many different scenarios, but when they start that kind of journey of, I need to learn how to do this, they tend to find themselves uh, moving into various kind of uh, property circles and training um, to learn. And, and it's great. And there's some really good ones out there. And a lot of our clients have learned and, and gone on and progressed really well. And what we found is they don't always learn. So they learn like about the strategies and overview of buy to let, HMO, commercial conversions, et cetera, but not necessarily how to finance it, but also how, how the legal side of it works, or they might get a snippet of it. So um, what I'd like, you know, from, from your side of things, how important is it for once uh, the these kind of individuals that have gone on these courses and learned and, and how important is it before they start maybe putting money down, starts building their team and speaking to people like yourselves and and because uh, they're going to there'll be so much more value from that. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they don't need to be a specialist in these areas. They don't need to be a tax expert. They don't need to be um, a legal expert. But I think what they do, the successful ones, know enough to ask the right questions. And so just knowing a little bit, so lease extension, there are probably three or four things you need to know. I think as I mentioned before, three or four things. If you know that, suddenly you've got a huge advantage over everybody else because you see opportunities and you know the solicitor to go to. So probably those three or four facts are all you need, plus a good solicitor who knows what they're doing. And having that sort of information, I think, is really important. Just having enough to ask the right questions. Because if you don't ask the right questions, you won't get the right answer. Um, and a lot of professional advisors, lawyers included, aren't always terribly proactive. They'll answer the questions they get asked but they won't necessarily tell you what you need to know because they don't know what you're thinking. So I think, yeah, it's important to, to, to spend a bit of time getting a team together, people you understand, understand the background of what you're doing, looking at your options, um, rather than sometimes rushing into the first deal you get. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you, Tim. 
Um, so I think we covered quite a lot there, Tim. In terms of, um, so first of all, thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Um, if if any of our listeners want to reach out and, uh, and and make contact, what's the best way to do that? How can they reach out and find you? Probably serve email or the website. I'm available on Facebook Messenger. Um, there's the website there above bishopslaw.com, uh, or happily get emails directly tim bishop at bishopslaw.co.uk. Weirdly, but it'll come to me on that one. Yeah, or any of those um, be be good. Um, we're always happy to talk to people. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time, Tim, and I look forward to speaking to you soon. Yeah, thanks, John.